Section 48 of Shakespeare Identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Dramatic Self-Revelation, Hamlet, Part 2. It would not be fair to the memory of de Vere's mother to maintain, in the absence of positive proof, that she had furnished by her inconstancy a justification of her son's mistrust. We may, however, draw attention to facts that might account for it, even if they did not justify it. It has already been pointed out that in the short biography of de Vere, from which we have drawn so freely, no mention whatever is made of his mother, and one gets the impression that after his father's death she had almost dropped out of his life, the whole of the circumstances contrasting markedly with those recorded of Southampton and his mother. From the account given of de Vere's father, however, we learn that his widow died in 1568, Oxford being then only eighteen years of age, and that some time in these early years of his life at the royal court his mother had married Sir Charles, or Christopher, Tyrrell. As, moreover, her death occurred at Castle Headingham, one of the chief of the ancestral homes of the de Veres, it looks as though Oxford's stepfather had established himself on the family estates, and may have appeared to the youth as having doubly supplanted his father, first in his mother's affections, and then in the hereditary domains. This, of course, is the situation represented in Hamlet. Whether, in addition to the central fact, there had also been an unseemly brevity in the widowhood of Oxford's mother, we cannot tell, for although the precise date of her death is given, the date of her second marriage is not. We have spent much time in the search for this date, so far without result. It will be interesting, therefore, to learn whether or not it was an o'er-hasty marriage, and whether, as Hamlet ironically remarked, the funeral-baked meats did coldly furnish forth the marriage-tables. Apart from this, however, there was sufficient in the general situation to cut very deeply into the mind of an imaginative and supersensitive youth, and to have struck a severe blow at that poetic ideal of feminine constancy, which was natural to his age and temperament. The important point for our present argument is that we have in Oxford the same moral trait that we have in Hamlet, that we have parallel external circumstances tending toward its production, and that these external circumstances are just such as might lead to all the tragic developments which succeeded in both instances. Faith in motherhood being the fount at which faith in womanhood may be revived when threatened by the failure of other relationships, the man who, like Hamlet or Oxford, lacks this faith to carry him through crises, can have but a hopeless outlook on the most vital and fundamental of human relationships. The personal relationship in the play which bears most critically upon our present argument is that of Hamlet with Polonius and Ophelia. The chief minister at the royal court of Denmark is Polonius. The chief minister at the royal court of England was Burley. Is the character of Polonius such that we may identify him with Burley? Again, it is not a question of whether Polonius is a correct representation of Burley, but whether he is a possible representation of the English minister from the special point of view of the Earl of Oxford. To what has already been said elsewhere in this connection, it will perhaps suffice to quote from Macaulay's essay on Burley. To the last, Burley was somewhat jocose, and some of his sportive sayings have been recorded by Bacon. They show much more shrewdness than generosity, and are indeed neatly expressed reasons for exacting money rigorously and for keeping it carefully. It must, however, be acknowledged that he was rigorous and careful for the public advantage as well as for his own. To extol his moral character is absurd. It would be equally absurd to represent him as a corrupt, rapacious, and bad-hearted man. 
he paid great attention to the interest of the state and great attention also to the interest of his own family hardly any one will deny that macaulay's delineation of burley is correct portraiture of polonius and therefore if burley appeared thus to macaulay after two and a half centuries had done their purifying work on his memory one can readily suppose his having presented a similar appearance to a contemporary who had had no special reason to bless his memory the resemblance becomes all the more remarkable if we add to this description the spying proclivities of denmark's minister the philosophic egoism he propounds under a gloss of morality his opposition to his son's going abroad and his references to his youthful love affair and to what he did at the university all these are strikingly characteristic of burley and the most of them have already been adequately dealt with probably the most conclusive evidence that polonius is burley is to be found in the best-known lines which shakespeare has put into the mouth of denmark's minister the string of worldly wise maxims which he bestows upon his son laertes act one scene three they are much too well known to require repetition here with these in mind however consider the maxims which burley laid down for his favourite son of which burley's biographer martin a s hume remarks that though these precepts inculcate moderation and virtue here and there cecil's own philosophy of life peeps out he then gives examples let thy hospitality be moderate beware that thou spendest not more than three or four parts of thy revenue beware of being surety for thy best friends he that payeth another man's debts seeketh his own decay with thine equals be familiar yet respectful trust not any man with thy life credit or estate be sure to keep some great man for thy friend the whole method style language and sentiment are reproduced so much in the life of polonius's advice to laertes that shakespeare seems hardly to have exercised his own distinctive powers at all in composing the speech the connection of the advice of polonius with similar precepts in lili's euphus has long been recognized what seems hitherto to have escaped notice is that both have a common source in burley how much of what appears in lili of these precepts was derived through oxford it would be useless to discuss the general relations of the two men has already been sufficiently considered we take this opportunity of remarking what may not be very material to our argument that the spirit of the closing words of polonius's speech the words beginning unto thine own self be true seems to us to be generally quite misunderstood these words bring to a close a speech which throughout is a direct appeal in every word to mere self-interest is then this last passage framed in a nobler mould with a high moral purpose and an appeal to lofty sentiment we think not the bare terms in which the final exhortation is cast stripped of all ethical inferences and reinterpretations are as direct an appeal to self-interest as everything else in the speech they are unto thine own self not unto the best that is in you nor the worst consistently with his other injunctions he closes with one which summarizes all the real bearing which may be perhaps best appreciated by turning it into modern slang be true to number one make your own interests your guiding principle and be faithful to it this is quite in keeping with the cynical egoism of burley's advice beware of being surety for thy best friends but keep some great man for thy friend and of course it does follow as the night the day that a man who directs his life on this egoistic principle cannot truly speaking be false to any man a man cannot be false to another unless he owes him fidelity if therefore a man only acknowledges fidelity to his own self nothing that he can do can be a breach of fidelity to another 
on this principle burleigh was true to himself when he made use of the patronage of somerset he was still true to himself not false to somerset when he drew up the articles of impeachment against his former patron bacon was true to himself when he made use of the friendship of essex he was still true to himself not false to essex when he used his powers to destroy his former friend the philosophic opportunism was therefore a very real thing in the political life of those days and the fact that shakespeare puts it into the mouth not of a moralist but of a politician and as we believe into the mouth of one whom he intended to represent burley serves to justify both the very literal interpretation we put on the sentences and the identification of polonius with elizabeth's chief minister needless to say one who like shakespeare was imbued with the best ideals of feudalism with their altruistic conceptions of duty social fidelity and devotion would never have put forward as an exalted sentiment any ethical conception resting upon a merely personal and individualistic sanction for this admiration of the moral basis of feudalism would enlighten him in a way which hardly anything else could respecting the sophistry which lurks in every individualist or self-interest system of ethics the advice of polonius to laertes is given just as the latter is about to set out for paris and all the instructions of the former to the spy reynaldo have reference to the conduct of laertes in that city the applicability of it all to burleigh's eldest son thomas cecil afterward earl of exeter and founder of the present house of exeter will be apparent to any one who will take the trouble to read g ravenscroft dennis's work the house of cecil the tendency toward irregularities at which ophelia hints in her parting words to her brother is strongly suggestive of thomas cecil's life in paris and all the inquiries which polonius instructs the spy to make concerning laertes are redolent of the private information which burley was receiving through some secret channel of his son thomas's life in the french capital for he writes to his son's tutor windebank that he has a watchword sent to him out of france that his son's being there shall serve him to little purpose for that he spends all his time in idleness we are told that thomas cecil incurred his father's displeasure by his slothfulness extravagance carelessness in dress inordinate love of unmeet plays as dice and cards and that he learnt to dance and play at tennis with these things in mind let the reader again go carefully over the advice of polonius to laertes and the former's instructions to reynaldo he will hardly escape we believe a sense of the identity of father and son with burleigh and his son thomas cecil one point in hamlet's relations with laertes strikes one as peculiar his sudden and quite unexpected expression of affection what is the reason that you use me thus i loved you ever now the fact is that thomas cecil was one entirely out of touch with and in many ways quite antagonistic to burleigh and his policy in spite of his wildness in early life he is spoken of as a brave and unaffected man of action out of place in court but with all the fine instincts of a soldier he was also one of those who along with oxford favoured the queen's marriage with the duke of alenson in direct opposition to the policy of burleigh thomas cecil was an older man than oxford and they had much in common to form the basis of affection it is impossible therefore to resist the conclusion that polonius is burleigh and that thomas cecil formed in part at any rate the model for laertes this being so it follows almost as conclusively that hamlet is oxford for although polonius's daughter ophelia was not actually hamlet's wife she represents that relationship in the play the royal consent had been given to the marriage and it was through no fault either of herself or her father that the union did not take place hamlet's bearing toward his would-be father-in-law is moreover strongly suggestive of oxford's bearing toward his actual father-in-law what points to resemblance may have existed between ophelia and lady oxford it is impossible to say 
we notice however that the few words the queen speaks respecting ophelia harp on the idea of that sweetness which we have noticed lady oxford and helena in all's well had in common sweets to the sweet farewell i thought thou shouldst have been my hamlet's wife sweet maid something too of that mistrust and peculiar treatment which hamlet extended to ophelia has already been remarked in oxford's bearing toward his wife along with suggestions of the ultimate growth of a similar affection we have also observed that the only accusation which oxford was willing to make against his wife was that she was allowing her parents to interfere between herself and him this is precisely the state of things to which hamlet objects in ophelia he perceives that polonius is spying upon him with her connivance and cunningly puts her to the test whereon she lies on him his reply is an intimation to her that he had detected the lie hamlet where is your father ophelia at home my lord hamlet let the doors be shut on him that he may play the fool nowhere but in his own house hamlet's use of the double sense of the word honest in a question to ophelia the identical word which in its worst sense was thrust to the front by burleigh's respecting the rupture between the lord and lady oxford is not without significance polonius we take it then furnishes the key to the play of hamlet if burleigh be polonius oxford is hamlet and hamlet we are entitled to say is shakespeare no feature of the parallelism between hamlet and oxford is more to the point than that of their common interest in the drama and in the form that their interest takes both are high-born patrons of companies of play actors showing an interest in the welfare of their players sympathetic and instructive critics in the technical aspects of the craft they are no mere passive supporters of the drama but actually take a hand in modifying and adjusting the plays composing passages to be interpolated and generally supervising all the activities of their companies not only in the play within the play which forms so distinctive a feature of hamlet but also before the period dealt with it is evident that hamlet had been so occupied in all this he is a direct representation of the earl of oxford and no one else in an equal degree amongst the other lordly patrons of drama in queen elizabeth's reign to fully elaborate the parallelism between hamlet and oxford would demand a rewriting of almost everything that is known of the latter illustrated by the greater part of the text in the play we shall therefore merely add to what has already been said several of the minor points hamlet expresses his musical feeling and even suggests musical skill in the recorder scene act three scene two in the same scene he shows his interest in italy the dueling in which he takes part also has its counterpart in the life of oxford and even the tragic fate of polonius at the hand of hamlet is a reminder of the unfortunate death of one of burleigh's servants at the hands of oxford hamlet's desire to travel had to yield to the opposition of his mother and stepfather his unrealized ambitions for a military vocation are indicated in the final scene and his actual participation in a sea fight is duly recorded the death and burial of ophelia at the time of hamlet's sea episode is elsewhere shown to be analogous to lady oxford's death about the same time as de vere's sea experiences suggestions of a correspondence between minor characters in the play and people with whom oxford had to do can easily be detected rosencrantz for example might well be taken for oxford's representation of sir walter raleigh the sanctimonious pirate who went to sea with the ten commandments less one of them if we are right in this guess we have a most subtle touch in act three scene two hamlet instead of saying by these hands in speaking to rosencrantz coins an expression from the catechism and calls his hands his pickers and stealers thus indicating most ingeniously the combination of piracy with the religiosity of raleigh hamlet's next ironical remark that he himself 
lacks advancement helps to bear out the identification we suggest. End of section 48